Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is July 24th, 2015. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. And joining me in our studio from all across the planet today, we have... um, Doug, Erica, and Gabby, and unfortunately Tiffany won't be with us today, but we'd like to welcome Erica back um, after she's been doing some traveling. She's back with us for a little bit here. Um, So uh, today we're going to talk about psychiatric drugs and the disruption of the moral compass. So we're going to go over um, some of the common psychiatric drugs, um, just talk about what they're doing to our society, what they're doing to everybody's brains and, um, you know, what the detrimental effects of that are on the general moral compass and how the, the connections play themselves out there. Um, but let's start by connecting the dots with a little bit of uh, news from the week in health and wellness. Um, Erica, do you want to start us off with, uh, you had an item about psychiatric drugs specifically here. The oh, well, um, oh, yeah. Well, actually, um that was something I was going to get to later in the show. Um, okay. Cool. But, well, let's um, let's hold I'm, that. Well, yeah. Let's hold it for a minute. Because we'll, it's we'll kind of to, in uh, depth. Yeah. For sure. Well, um, there was another item here about the uh, <clears throat> the missing doctors. Uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. Some of our listeners might be aware of. Um, do you want to go over that? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so over the, the last, uh, starting in June, there's been this kind of strange um, occurrence of missing doctors. And we actually carried an article on the science page about it called Fifth Holistic Doctor Died in Florida Making Five Dead and Five More Missing. And um, the author is named Erin Elizabeth, and it's Health Net News, and it, it's she kind of broke this story. Um but basically, it's kind of strange. There's been all these um, naturopathic, like kind of alternative doctors um, missing. Um, and she talks about one of them in particular, Dr. Baron Holt. Um, and he was a faith healer. And he uh, his unexpected death happened in Jacksonville, Florida. And it's been a, flow, a blow to his family and community. And he has a practice called Revolution Chiropractic and they just celebrated their fifth year and he was only 33 years old. He was a highly fit doctor and he was deeply connected to the Christian faith. Um, It looks like his uh, practice was really booming and that um, he took a holistic approach to treatment um, and his staff taught classes on nutrition, exercise and even aromatherapy. And then um, kind of on the tail of this, Dr. Holt, the author goes into talk about these other doctors that were disappearing right around the same time. And she gives a pretty interesting timeline. Um, On June 19th, a Dr. Bradstreet um, was found with a gunshot wound to his chest in a river. And... um, there's really authority said they found the body, but they have, you know, no details 
about what happened on June 21st. Two chiropractic doctors, both in Florida, um, were found dead, you know. And then um, a Dr. Hendel and a Dr. Bradstreet. And then on June 26th, a Dr. Patrick Fitzpatrick uh, went missing in North Dakota. On June 29th, uh, the beloved holistic doctor Teresa Sivers, MD, was found murdered in her home. She was known as the Mother Teresa of South Florida. Um, At first, they were investigating. They didn't know what the reasons were. They said that it was not a random shooting, it was not a home invasion, and that the killing was targeted. And then on July 5th, uh, Lisa Riley, a doctor of osteopathic medicine, was found dead in her home. And then just uh, yesterday, I saw another article, seventh dead doctor found uh, among five slain in California. So it sounds like some really kind of creepy, weird turn of events that all these doctors are being found dead. There was another article under Puppet Masters on Signs of the Times, Holistic Healthcare Becomes High-Risk Profession. Five holistic health doctors found dead in four weeks. Five more doctors go missing. And that's from the uh, Free Thought Project. But what I found interesting in the article is the author says this seemingly systematic nature in which natural doctors are ending up either missing or dead raises serious questions as to whether some entity or person is possibly orchestrating these events. With billions of dollars at stake, what lengths would Big Pharma go to in an effort to silence those that share their knowledge of natural cures with the public? So... It's definitely strange. You guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it is really strange. It's like, it it makes me wonder, like, what what they know, what they were onto. Um, Because if you think about it, there's, like, hundreds of thousands of different, like, holistic health practitioners across the U.S. alone. And it makes me wonder what, in particular, these guys were doing. Like, maybe their methods were just effective, and uh, that was seen as a threat, or maybe they had discovered something in particular that uh, maybe made made them uh, more of a target. It's very strange, though. Or maybe yeah. it's just a serial killer psychopath that, you know, just decided mm. that he doesn't like holistic doctors. <laughs> I'm not sure, but... But he does, he treats the hysteria, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, all these if I will be living in Florida, because if I understood correctly, a lot of these deaths happen in Florida. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I would think that, yes, that somebody might be loose in Florida. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's um, definitely we'll an interesting it thing. Like, yeah. It seems like this, um, the author that I, I shared, Air, uh, Health Nut News, it seems like she's kind of keeping up on it and following it and just adding information as it comes through just to kind of put the pieces together, you know. So if more start disappearing, um, at least should, somebody's documenting it, you know. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, there was a time – almost 10 years ago now where there were a bunch of uh, um, bioweapons researchers, I mean, mostly on the East yeah. Coast, that were found dead within the span of a couple weeks. 
Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. microbiologist, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, a profession, mm-hmm. a highly risk profession body, Iraq, you know, and which happened a lot to scientists, you know, they just died. Yeah, it's very strange. It also reminds me of, there was a doctor, um, his name escapes me at the moment. Eric, I don't know if you remember his name, but we, we ran into him when we were doing stuff on uh, vaccine research. And he died, like he was he was very anti-vaccine and uh, writing all this uh, different stuff about uh, the dangers of vaccines. And he ended up dying under very kind of mysterious circumstances as well. You know, it, it was kind of ruled as a suicide, but didn't really look like it could have been a suicide and he didn't have any reason to commit suicide. So it, it's, yeah, you know, I do it, remember it's not him. unheard of. And he was actually was mentioned in one of the articles. Uh, we, I can't for the life of me remember his name right now, but he was out of Canada and he was doing mm-hmm. a lot of uh, re- research on vaccines. And yes, and actually when I was reading about these doctors, his name came up. I wish I could remember his name. It will come to me. That was, um, but the same was Dr. Andrew name. Molden. Yes. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, yes. that's it. <laughs> And there's actually a site dedicated to that uh, story, drandrewmolden.com, M-O-U-L-D-E-N. And it's uh, titled, What Happened to Dr. Andrew Molden? And they just kind of go through his research and the story of his death. Mm. Yeah, very strange indeed. Mm. So if you're a practitioner, you better watch your back. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know from history sense. that a lot of the, the, the big corporations <clears throat> don't really bat an eye at bumping off a few people. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's ever, um, I mean, certainly there have been cases that have been uh, proven, but I think more so anecdotally people that just kind of mysteriously disappear when they go up against certain companies. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> these pharmaceutical and, and big ag companies are getting so big and kind of working hand in hand that, it certainly makes a makes a person wonder. Mm-hmm. Makes one wonder. There's another physician that died recently. Uh, it might be might be related. It might be not. He's Dr. Nicolas Gonzalez. He was considered a hero for a lot of people in the alternative medicine community, and he had individualized nutritional protocols, enzyme therapy for cancer. So presumably, um, he died of a sudden heart attack, and everybody was, you know, this was on July 21st, and everybody was like, yeah, kind of shocked, you know, because he was in excellent health, you know, so the heart attack was definitely unexpected. Mm. So that's another one that could be related or not. It was quite, you know, for me, it was a surprise as well. What do you know? A heart attack, a sudden heart attack, somebody who ate very healthy, took supplements and all kinds of protocols, natural protocols that really made a difference in people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he dies of a heart attack. <laughs> Sounds yeah. suspicious. I, 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 yeah, I thought that was weird. Like, so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> On to the next well, positive go, topic. <laughs> yeah. So we raise the mood here. Um, Gabby, do you want to talk about, you had an item here to uh, cover uh, 
talking about gluten intolerance. Yeah, it's a good reminder because it's an article that Peter Osborne from Gluten Free Society published. He covered oh, yeah. um, a scientific article published very recently. And um, he reminds us that, you know, literally millions of people are gravitating towards the gluten-free diet, regardless of diagnostic tests or medical advice or whatever, and they're feeling much better. You know, they're, they're improving their symptoms for migraines, depression, chronic fatigue. And uh, Dr. Peter Osborne reminds us that, you know, um, the diagnostic tests, at least the, very, the ones that are very mainstream, they all they only test for very few proteins in wheat, whereas actually the research that is available shows that there are over 400 proteins, gluten proteins, in various mm. grains that are more inflammatory than gliadine, which is the original type of gluten protein, and which is the main one tested in the in diagnostic tests. And uh, not only that, uh, but that are in this scientific study that was published recently, they found five new protein groups that are uh, that are found in wheat, and um, they are non-gluten proteins, and they are even more inflammatory as well. They could be more inflammatory than gliadin, so it's more support for going gluten-free without, you know, hesitation. <laughs> It's really very inflammatory food, and it's all grains, you know, including corn and rice, have been found to be very problematic for some people. And, um, you know, and uh, also keep in mind that, you know, mainstream medicine, when people are recommended a wheat-free diet for their celiac disease after confirmation with diagnostic tests, which the clinical criteria are very strict. So if you get a label of celiac disease by mainstream criteria, you are really, really bad, you know, really bad health because the diagnostic criteria are really strict. Like your gut literally is like basically destroyed, you know. And uh, these people go on a gluten-free diet and up to 92% of patients fail to respond to the diet. And that's because they only remove wheat and then, you know, when we have all this research that, you know, all these, all these inflammatory proteins that are everywhere in grains. So, you know, that's another consideration. If your gluten-free diet fails, it is because it is not gluten-free. Even the gluten-free mm -hmm. industry, which is, uh, they earn lots of money. It is an industry, so always be aware of the food industry. They sell you gluten-free products with that label when they actually contain a lot of gluten proteins. Corn, for mm. example, they use a lot of corn, and that contains a lot of gluten. And yeah, that diet won't work. You gotta get rid of grains. And the the other interesting thing is that some people think of quinoa as relatively gluten-free. Well, no. Actually, it's very inflammatory, and the uh, and the other ones listed is um, well mold and mycotoxins. This is in you know in the in all processed foods, um, soy, corn, all these foods can be very pro problematic for those who are gluten intolerant. So yeah, gluten free actually mm -hmm. means grain free basically. 
Yeah, I think that's important that there's no real such thing as a gluten-free grain, um, despite the fact that uh, all these, you know, healthcare practitioners will tell you that. You know, everybody who has to go on this diet, they they go, oh, you have to eat, you have to eat only gluten-free grains. Well, really, there's no such thing. I mean, it, it might not be quote-unquote gluten, but just the fact that there's 400 different uh, inflammatory proteins that can can have this effect. Um, you know, if you're if you're really serious about this, you need to cut out all grains and you know legumes while you're at it too, um, because that they're they're the problem. Yeah. And it is really misleading all the labeling. Like you you go into the store, and we've talked about this before on this show, but the um, all the like on the coconut milk, it will say it's gluten free, or on things that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It seems to be like a selling point in in stores mm-hmm. now. You know, you get these, especially at places like Trader Joe's or, you know, these more health-oriented stores, and it's like they have all these products that obviously contain some sort of gluten, but it they can label it gluten-free for some reason, you know? Yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys have that in uh, where you are in Europe and Canada, but I'm definitely seeing a lot of it Mm -hmm. here in the U.S. It's become almost like a selling point. It's like in the past, you know, Mm -hmm. you had the low-fat selling point. Now the low-fat's gone and it's (laughs) GF-free, gluten-free. Yeah. Yeah. I even see it on toothpaste and, uh, and body care products and stuff like that too. Yeah. Yeah. I that mean, it's, when I saw it on the coconut milk, it's like, what? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I've actually seen some yeah, uh, water. That, I've seen water that was labeled fat-free, which I thought was kind of funny. But they, they some <laughs> wait, waiting, waiting for the bottled water to say gluten and dairy-free. Yeah, but definitely don't label uh, GMOs, you know. Everything can be labeled with gluten-free or this-free or that-free, fat-free, but, you know, can't have a GMO label on it. Yeah, I do ask that a lot. Like, people want to remove, okay, bread. They want to start to removing something, so they think about bread. They say, can I eat a corn cookie? I said, uh... Right. <laughs> How about all the GMOs on it? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> How about eating like your grandfather did, you know, bacon and eggs? Yeah. Exactly. Well, I can see how it would really confuse the consumer, and especially somebody who's trying to not eat gluten, but then they think that all these things are okay, right? And then they don't really see results because they're still eating things that are causing imp- an inflammatory response, right? Yeah, yeah. and they spend much, you know, a lot of money on these gluten-free products when they're actually crap. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I could kind of see from some from some perspective, you know, if somebody does have a really serious gluten intolerance, then yeah, I can see why they would be like, oh, okay, this toothpaste is gluten-free, so I'm safe. But I I do think that there's definitely a uh, you know, a, a, an issue there where where people are going to just become fatigued with the whole thing and like, oh, give me a break, more gluten-free, come on. And, uh, you know, there's the bound to be a backlash at some point, too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I've seen my fair share of rolled eyes that, 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 that any kind of talk about being gluten-free. 
uh, I think it's already yeah. reached that sort of publicly discredited state where people either think it's dumb or they don't believe it, you know, um, mm -hmm. or if, like if you say that you don't want gluten, then they're like, well, are you celiac, you know, and so you try to get yeah. into a conversation about how it doesn't matter, but I think yeah. it's already discredited mostly in the, in the public eye. Yeah, it's like a threat of many jokes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like Jonathan said, the rolling of the eyes and the butt of many jokes. Oh, you're one of those gluten-free people, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can kind of see, like, waiters and waitresses in restaurants and stuff, like, you know, hold, oh, good, I've got one of these tables. That's all, uh, you know, all gluten-free. <laughs> Yeah, I can't yep. eat as much as I want. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, let's let's move on to some of our articles here. Doug, did you want to talk about rhodiola a little bit? What is rhodiola? Yeah, um, so there was an article uh, on the Science Health and Wellness uh, section um, by a naturopath named uh, Laura Bryden um, on her blog that's called Reset Me. Um, and she's actually a naturopath who graduated from uh, Toronto's naturopath school called the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. So I, I thought that was great because Toronto's my hometown. Um, so she talks about how our stress response system, which is known as the HPA axis, um, it's calibrated to kind of intermittently um, deal with severe threats. Um, but it's not really for the incessant kind of trivial threats of modern life. Um, like we don't want our, sorry, the HPA axis is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, uh, and we don't want it to kind of charge up and release cortisol every single time, you know, we're in heavy traffic or we're getting, you know, phone calls left and right or the boss is on our back, but, but it does. It kind of charges up in all these situations. Um, so, and it's kind of difficult to power down our HPA axis, you know, um, to kind of calm down and, and, and you know, see these, threats for what they really are, not actual threats to our life, but more just kind of um, daily stresses. Uh, so she says one way of dealing with this, like her, her kind of favorite way of dealing with this is a, an herb called rhodiola, um, which is an arctic plant. Um, it has a root that smells like roses, which is where it gets the, its name rhodiola from. Um, and, it, and she calls it a stress vaccine. Uh, so it's, it was traditionally used in Russia and Scandinavia as an energy and fertility tonic. Uh, but modern studies show that the extracts of rhodiola improve symptoms of depression and relieve stress-induced fatigue. And this was kind of interesting. I did a little bit more digging into uh, rhodiola, and apparently a Soviet Union scientist used rhodiola helps, sorry, rhodiola to help soldiers improve their mood, brain function, and physical performance. Uh, there's been human studies that show that a 200-milligram dose of rhodiola helped volunteers improve their exercise endurance. Uh, it's also been shown to relieve mental fatigue. In one study, um, doctors on night call uh, did 170 milligrams a day of rhodiola uh, for two weeks, and it helped them to think and remember better, concentrate, calculate, and respond to audio and visual cues. Uh, in another study, uh, taking 100 milligrams of rhodiola every day for 20 days helped students improve their capacity to work, um, help their coordination, uh, and their general sense of well-being. Their learning ability increased 61%, and their fatigue levels dropped by 30%. Um, so she talks a little bit about the, the mechanism of action. Um, so it modulates the um, stress-activated protein kinase called JNK, um, and it restores normal sensitivity to uh, cortisol receptors. 
So a lot of times when you're dealing with chronic stress, the, the cortisol receptors, the cortisol is like the stress hormone, it, um, it, those receptors become uh, desensitized, kind of like insulin resistance. You suffer from cortisol resistance. So uh, rhodiola seems to kind of uh, reverse this. Um, in a 2009, uh, 2009 Swedish placebo-controlled study, uh, at the end of a four-week study, participants given rhodiola had measurably lower cortisol levels than the placebo group, and they scored better on scales of burnout and cognitive function. So it seems to work via um, what's called hormesis. And hormesis is when you take something or do something that causes a, a mild stress mimic, uh, which the body kind of responds to in a normal way uh, um, that responds to a stress, but uh, it builds up. It's kind of like working a muscle. Like you, you by giving yourself these kind of mild stressors, you uh, kind of build up a resistance. Um, a lot of different herbs work that way. A lot of the anti-inflammatory herbs actually work that way. You're actually they they cause a minor inflammatory response. And what's that? The reason that it works is because your body mobilizes its own innate anti-inflammatory properties. Um, so rhodiola seems to work the same way. It introduces a mild stress, and what that does is uh, mobilizes your body's anti-stress um, functions. So uh, for that reason, what I found is that rhodiola is not uh, something that you want to do before bed um, just because it does kind of give you that kind of mild stimulatory um, response. So um, I always say if you're going to be doing rhodiola, do it in the morning or at the latest in the afternoon. Um, so yeah, and, and she, she talks about how our bodies kind of respond to the phytonutrients in plants as a way of kind of gauging the environment. So a plant will respond, if it knows there's a harsh winter coming, it'll kind of jack up the phytonutrients it produces to kind of resist that. And by taking in these plants and eating these plants, we um, can, our body can kind of recognize that and will respond. So, it, you know, the author speculates, does rhodiola invite our body to prepare for uh, the stress of a harsh Arctic climate? Um, and that might be what it's doing. That's why your body kind of responds that way, because it goes, okay, there's some stress coming, so I need to kind of jack these things up. Um, just found another interesting thing on Green Med Info that said that uh, rhodiola performed as well as Zoloft in a study looking to improve symptoms of depression. So very interesting herb. I do I do take it myself quite often. Um, I was taking it at first just to um, deal with uh, um, the after effects of exercise and to kind of increase my endurance, but I've definitely noticed that it does help with stress in general. So yeah, I take I take it daily actually. How much is the recommended dose? Um, the amount I'm taking, I'm pretty sure I, I, I'm pretty sure it's it's 200 milligrams that I'm taking right now. But in those past studies, like it, they showed response um, at 100 milligrams a day, uh, 170 milligrams a day, and um, the other study I talked about was doing 200 milligrams a day. So some somewhere in that range, I'd say 100 to 200 milligrams. Good. Do My they offer support? Sorry. My adrenal support has it with the exact dose. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Is it yeah. available on tincture too, Doug? Do you know? It is, yeah. It is. You can take it as a tincture. And, you know, as Gabby mentioned, it is in a lot of formulas that have, like, a, multiple different ones. Um, I've found uh, that uh, there, there – I, I don't know if there's been any actual studies on it, but it seems to work really well with ashwagandha. 
Um, and ashwagandha is a, a, another herb that actually lowers uh, the cortisol response. Um, a lot of people take ashwagandha before bed to kind of lower their cortisol and, and get them ready for sleep. So the two of those things seem to work in conjunction quite well. Oh, yeah, my adrenal support also has that one. Good, so that's why I feel better. <laughs> Sounds like a good formula. Like, I forgot, you know, I stopped it, like, for a week, and there is a heat wave right now in Europe, you know. I was falling asleep, like, at midday, literally, like, okay, that's it. I'm going to fall asleep right here, otherwise <laughs> <laughs> you know, drop it. And yeah. uh, I started taking the adrenal optimizer again. I was like, oh, much better. <laughs> cool the jets. <laughs> yeah. Cool the jets that of stress. <laughs> Doug, are you aware of any uh, impending regulations on something like rhodiola, kind of like we're seeing with like comfrey and other herbs that are commonly available? Uh, not that I know of, no. I, I, I don't think there's any, any reason to. I mean, comfrey, um, there, there was some evidence of, some, I think it was liver toxicity. Um, so that's yeah. kind of what people have been arguing to get, get rid of that. But as far as I know, there's no real adverse effects from taking rhodiola and people take it daily, um, all the time. So I, I don't think there's any, any risk of losing that anytime soon. But of course, who knows, right? Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get into our topic for the day. Speaking of speaking of uh, you know anxiety and stress and what people do to kind of cope with that, um, we can see that uh, you know I'm sure a lot of people are aware. You know, even if you're just kind of a casual um, reader of the of the news, um, or if you kind of keep your ear to the ground, that um, there's just been this massive explosion of psychiatric drugs. Um, especially over the last like 10 to 15 years. And um, so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit uh, today. And um, Erica, let's revisit that uh, that article that we had brought up at the beginning. It was uh, Psychiatric Drugs and the Welfare of Humans. Do you want to start us off? Yeah, actually, <clears throat> actually. Oh, yeah, let me mention, yeah, just let me mention, you know, a quick article that we stumbled upon with and that gave hmm. us, you know, the idea talk about these moral compass disruption because well mm -hmm. as a background you know um as a physician you know they initially like a couple of years ago or so they gave us a green number because physicians are at high risk for um addiction to psychiatric drugs and i was like mm -hmm. oh okay <laughs> so in case i get i get addicted or something i call the mm -hmm. number right well, in the end, I've never tried psychiatric drugs. Um, I, you know, I always explain that in our areolist program, the, our breathing and meditation program, that, you know, where it's just as good or even better. I've never tried these drugs, and, you know, I, I lead a fairly, you know, stressful life, so to speak. Uh, we work in the emergency room. And uh, I had a lot of colleagues describe me how it feels to be on those drugs, and it's really very concerning. Um, one that stands out is uh, on benzos. Oh, you don't care about anything. You know, everything's fine. You know, how that's any good? <laughs> that sounds like a statement, you know, that could be used to describe a psychopath, you know. And mm -hmm. 
another yes and basically that's the, the the description that stands out for me because you're supposed to care and so mm -hmm. we found this article which is titled some psychiatric drugs seem to affect moral decisions which um it's a very dumb study actually it covers a very stupid study the study <laughs> compared how much pain people were willing to anon uh, anonymously inflict on themselves or strangers in exchange for money while they were on antidepressants or dopamine-boosting drugs, like uh, Parkinson's drugs. So, yeah, that's mm. pretty sick. And so this is what they did. Mm. And they found that, for example, the dopamine-boosting drugs, they virtually eliminated all altruistic behaviors. And um, mm. for those who were on antidepressants, it was kind of mixed up, but uh, the basic point was that they were very harm averses, you know, they will be willing to pay twice as much to avoid pain and stuff like that. So that made me think, you know, oh God, so all these people like, you know, on all these drugs and, uh, well, we have a world that is, you know, completely gone mad and nobody's noticing, right? <laughs> because they don't care. Mm -hmm. So, yes, that's the gist of it. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure Erica has very good points to make as well. <laughs> well, that's what the, that article was what got us talking about this topic because um, it's just so concerning to see, especially uh, when you have loved ones or families or friends go through these kind of, you know, uh, medications to watch people change and to watch their uh, demeanor and their behavior change. And so that's kind of what, what spurred our, our topic of discussion. But um, yeah, I wanted to cover this uh, chemical warfare on human psychiatric drugs. And um, it's an interview with Robert Whitaker. And um, I've spoken about him in the past in one of our other shows. I think it was on Big Pharma. Just the research that he's done uh, pursuing this psychiatric drug industry and um, basically endangering America, the American public and obviously not just Americans, but um, he exposes the lies and the cover-ups of, of the FDA and the, um, you know, the, the process of reviewing these type of medications. And as you guys were saying, like all these medications keep coming out. It seems like every week there's like a new medication to treat something and as Gabby was talking about what are the implications for the brain right so you have a, a restless leg syndrome and you take a medication and now all of a sudden you don't feel compassion anymore I mean that that's kind of concerning so basically um, in this article uh, that is carried on SOT and it's a few years old I mean his book came out a few years ago he he talks about uh, he makes the startling claim that new psychiatric drugs have directly contributed to an alarming new epidemic of drug-induced mental illness. Um, mm -hmm. He says that the very drugs that are prescribed by physicians to stabilize mental disorders, in fact, are inducing pathological changes in brain chemistry and triggering suicide, manic, and psychotic episodes convulsions, violence, diabetes, pancreatic failure, metabolic diseases, and premature death. Um, he said the common thread in all these different treatments 
was an attempt to suppress mental illness by deliberately damaging the higher functions of the brain. And the stunning truth is behind closed doors, the psychiatric establishment itself labeled these treatments as brain-damaging therapeutics. So he kind of goes into all the different generations of drugs. He says the, um, the uh, first generation of antipsychotic drugs created a drug-induced brain pathology by blocking the neurotransmitter dopamine and essentially shutting down many higher brain functions. In fact, when what antipsychotics such as Thorazine and Haldol were first introduced, psychiatrists themselves said, so, Psychiatrists themselves said these neuroleptic drugs were virtually indistinguishable, indistinguishable from a chemical lobotomy. So, I mean, the article is like, uh, you know, several pages long, but basically the gist I got out of the article was, uh, you know, basically a chemical lobotomy, um, basically numbing all sorts of emotions, uh, distressing emotions, um, discomfort, and, you know, changing the actual structure of the human brain. And so maybe you're not suffering anymore from anxiety or depression, but you're really not feeling anything, right? Mm. Yeah. It really puts things into perspective, you know, like all these kind of epidemic um, you know, diseases that are running rampant these days. Like, how much of that is actually because of side effects from from different uh, drugs that people are taking? You know, like uh, diabetes is one of the ones men- mentioned. I mean, how, how much of this diabetes that we're seeing out there is actually induced by uh, psychiatric medications? Yeah, I mean, and he actually- says that in this article. He says that psychiatric drugs is actually worsening the target symptom of depression or psychosis or anxiety over the long term. To give just an example, he says that in in, uh, 1903, roughly one out of every 500 people in in the United States were hospitalized for mental illness. When they introduced um, the psychiatric drugs, you know, by 1955, it became one out of 300 people. In the mm. 80s, the first generation of antipsychotic drugs were introduced, and um, the statistics changed uh, from 1955 to 1987. Uh, it went fourfold. One out of every 75 people were deemed disabled mentally ill, you know. So, and up it goes. And um, because of the way these drugs work, you know, they they have a person who has psychotic symptoms or maniac symptoms, and uh, they give them the drug. So maybe for the first week or the second week, it works for some people, not everybody, but they are kept mm-hmm. on these drugs um, indefinitely. And that leads to brain changes that were not there because initially, even though you take a drug to block dopamine receptors, for example, brains can show that even though you can have psychotic symptoms, it's not that you have a dysfunction in dopamine, you know, or a lot of dopamine in your brain. It's actually, you know, looks pretty normal. But when you take these drugs for a number of years, 
then, you know, it really screws your brain. Then you start showing, you know, that you develop more dopamine receptors as a compensation because the drug, the drug blocks dopamine. So the body responds by creating more dopamine receptors. So mm. they get more ill, obviously, <laughs> because they have more dopamine going around. And um, I found it interesting that in Ireland, in Ireland, they reported in 2003 that since the introduction of a typical antipsychotic, these ones that, you know, uh, block dopamine receptors, death rate among people with schizophrenia doubled, you know, and mm. uh, they compared it with death rates with standard drugs that were used, you know, the ones that were used before. And... Um, Yes, and it doubles with the new atypical antipsychotics. And uh, in fact, in their seven-year study, 25 of the 72 patients, they all died. While the statistics in countries, in very poor countries like Africa, where they cannot afford these drugs, actually people with schizophrenia do pretty good. Some actually heal, you know, because Mm -hmm. they have a third episode. They're not putting these drugs indefinitely. And they have a chance to recover, actually. So that's pretty crazy, yeah. you know. You have to be in the U.S. to really be at risk for dying. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's it's a it's a you know a money making machine for sure. You know what I mean? That there's that there's not these positive results, and like Gabby said, you know these side effects of 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 death and dying, and you know psychosis, and it. it it's making it worse in the long run, right? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I find it really interesting, too, that you can kind of see this uh, this rise in, like, narcissism and, you know, this kind of the more selfishness and psychopathic tendencies kind of increasing in society, and it kind of mirrors the, the rise in the use of these drugs. So, you know, everybody's always talking about how there's a, a lot less empathy, it seems, in, the, in, in everybody's day-to-day interactions. And, you know, how much of that is, is directly attributable to, uh, to people being on these drugs. Yeah, and they're prescribed like candy, you know. So yeah. some doctors try it and they say, oh, it's great, you don't care about anything. So they recommend it to their patients, you know, when they see they're highly stressed, they cannot deal with stress. Instead of recommending doing sports or yoga or breathing exercises, I say, oh, you or taking rhodiola. Yeah, or rhodiola. Or ashwagandha. <laughs> <laughs> or even if they're completely ignorant, you know, on alternative medicine or herbs. I, I've seen mm-hmm. some people actually say, okay, you can go to the herbal shop and, you know, ask for something there. <laughs> Maybe it will help. <laughs> That's more, you know, fear than, you know, giving a drug like this. Pharmaceutical reps, they will say, Oh, it doesn't create addiction. In fact, you know, it helps and it doesn't create addiction. So anybody can take it, you know. That's bullshit, you know. It's really Total. bullshit. Totally. Total yeah. bullshit. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people I've, I've struggle a... for years, you know, trying to to get off these drugs. And you can't, you know, the side effects, they last for years. It is well documented. Years. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had a couple friends who have gone through the process of what they described as a, you know, complete mental breakdown um, based on, you know, various causes, whether it was trauma, you know, like a, a death of someone close to them or things like that, and um, <clears throat> then ended up being put on some of these psychiatric drugs. And 
uh, one friend in particular described the uh, the result as just being this this darkness, you know, this like mm-hmm. incredible depression and sense of meaninglessness, and it just basically made everything completely worse. You know, maybe they weren't mm-hmm. having psychotic episodes in public anymore, but you know, they might as well just kind of be laying on a cot all day. Um, it just turns mm-hmm. people into vegetables, and and it. You know, it certainly doesn't make, um, it doesn't help people at the very least. And it, it does, you know, it doesn't help these people become uh, productive uh, in society or helpful or like we were talking about. It doesn't increase compassion or anything like that. It basically just makes you into a, a zombie. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the side effects and um, I guess, I, honestly, I wouldn't even call them side effects. They're like the primary effects of the drugs. They're really bad. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's breaking the moral compass. It makes elderly people um, completely like, you know, zombies uh, listed. And I remember Tiffany sharing an article on the previous show about how psychiatric drugs were killing 500,000 500, seniors every year. This was a study done, you know. Mm. And, uh, and yes, you know, they give these drugs to, to the elderly because they cannot sleep well, they're restless, and it's just basically we want to shut you off, you know, we don't you know, we don't care about you, we don't want to hear about you. Come on, take these drugs. And basically mm-hmm. it works with dementia dementia symptoms and and that's the horrible way of dying of passing away the last years of your life, you know. Mm-hmm. We see the same yeah. thing with yeah. veterans too. Um, Looking at there's yeah. an article on SOT, the disturbing facts about psych drugs, soldiers, and suicides. That um, there are now over 8,000 suicides each year by U.S. soldiers and veterans, over 22 a day, and that 33 percent of those are attributed to medication side effects because the, the Pentagon spends 280 million dollars a year. Oh, that was in 2010, so that was five years ago, um, on psychiatric drugs for soldiers. And, you know, we can see, like, the increasing um, ramp-up of, uh, you know, military domination throughout the world. And as soldiers who I think a lot of them, you know, and I've I've had a number of friends who are in the military as well, who sign up for ostensibly good reasons in their minds, they're defending their country, you know, they're being of service. I think a lot of them actually have good intentions. They're not just signing up to go kill people. But then when they get put into these situations where they're forced to serve a psychopathic agenda, you know, it breaks the brain. Um, and so then, you know, you you end up with suicidal tendencies or just extreme depression. Um, and a lot of these soldiers end up in a, in a really bad, bad way. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of times, I think the reason you see this problem is because, um, you know, when, when somebody enlists, they've kind of given up their ability to act from their own moral compass. Like they can't, they can no longer kind of make a decision because they think it's the right thing to do or that, you know, their conscience is telling them the right, the right thing to do. They have to give that up in order to just serve their orders, you know, so... Right despite the fact that they might think, uh, you know, it would be right to kind of evacuate a, a village of all the innocents before bombing it. No, that's not the, that's not uh, what their orders are. They have to just bomb the village. So by giving up their own 
um, ability to act from their own moral center, they, um, they by by having to give that up, I think that that causes a, a severe, um, you know, stress and and depression and and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, all these kinds of things that they're suffering from. So they're they're the army's response to this is just to drug them, and then of right. course then they're dealing with all these drug side effects and all these kinds of things. So it's a it's a terrible terrible situation. Well, yeah, adding to that, you know, um, the military was lived very close to a military base, so it had lots of experience with soldiers, especially young, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old soldiers who, um, like you guys were saying, they give these things out like candy and then they um, take them recreationally. And that's when things Mm -hmm. get really scary. So, they're combining, you know, like one of the main ones that uh, the military guys get is Xanax for anxiety and anti-anxiety. And um, and then they combine this Xanax with alcohol. And mm. it's basically a, a, a super deadly combination. And there's actually an article on the health and wellness section of SOT about Xanax addiction, side effects, withdrawal, and rehab because it is becoming, I think, one of the number one uh, drug overdose admittance to the hospital in the U.S. because they're combining this type of anti-anxiety benzo that basically lowers the heart rate. And, and there's been a quite a few children in the state of Hawaii that have died of this combination of the alcohol and the Xanax. Mm-hmm. So basically these uh, young soldiers are mixing these kind of drugs and it's having detrimental effects, you know? Yeah. yeah well, the ben- From that article that ben- Jonathan was just talking about. Oh. No, go ahead, Doug. Well, I was just going to say, like, just going to give a quick, thing from the, the article you were just talking about, that it says that 500% more soldiers abuse prescription drugs than illegal street drugs. That's mm-hmm. pretty telling right there. Totally. Yeah, because they're very easily accessible. And, um, you know, a few years ago, the, the, the Army realized that, you know, what they're doing is not working, and they actually had like a $5 million grant to pursue alternative therapies like uh, Tai Chi or meditation or yoga or things like this because they're obviously realizing that what they're doing is not working. Anything, it's getting Mm -hmm. worse. Mm -hmm. And it's also well documented that the, you know, U.S.-sponsored terrorists, you know, they use uh, drugs like these. Also, when they go like mass shooting, mass raping women, people, it is documented, for example, in passing on the Libyan war, the truth.com, you know, it's a tape from Al-Qaeda, that's the name of the documentary. And also in the documentary about Syria, which was done by a Russian channel, and, you know, they describe how all these, you know, people are drugged when they go mass, you know, committing, you know, all these atrocities. And um, it is all, you know, in combination with several drugs, but, you know, obviously also psychiatric drugs like these ones. And it's pretty bad, you know. It's uh, 
on that that's the extreme example, but you know, on an average level, on the population, you know, people that are very stressed and they don't learn uh, coping mechanisms, or it prevents like a dark night of the soul, you know, like and uh, looking in, within yourself or around yourself to find, you know, the causes of why you're so, you know, anxious or why are your mm -hmm. sources of stress. And uh, instead, you know, people are, you know, given these drugs and they start behaving, you know, pretty much like psychopaths, you know, that that expression, like, oh, you don't care about anything. So you have to behave like that in order to survive in these worlds. So, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, to, to, uh, what's his, uh, the psychologist named Dabrowski actually talked about having these kind of depressive episodes and things like that are, are necessary to kind of build yourself and kind of move on from these things to kind of like to, to undergo kind of um, like an evolutionary uh, change in your own psyche that, you know, these, these depressive episodes aren't, aren't necessarily a negative thing. They're sometimes... Um, you know, it's a sign of, of a necessary uh, shift, like something changing. So by suppressing these things, you're actually uh, suppressing your ability to kind of move on and, and actually evolve as, as a human being and like kind of increase your own emotional intelligence and empathy and these sorts of things. So um, that, you know, looking at it from that perspective, you can see how uh, detrimental these, these drugs can be. Yeah, they basically just numb people to the point where, you know, they don't function or they're ha they have a hard time. And at some point, there's got to be, you know, this threshold that they that they cross through. You know, I mean, I've watched people in my own family go through this and watched their their whole being change and everything, and it's it's concerning and and you know for somebody who hasn't done that it's hard to understand where they're at but you can really mm. see the personality changing because of this numbing experience whether it's the benzos or you know uh what is it ambient for sleep insomnia or you know i mean it's just over time you really start to see a change a character change Mm -hmm. And it's so completely normalized, like, you know, you could literally even, if you have problems uh, with insomnia, you can try melatonin, anything natural. But it, it is so normalized, you know, to prescribe these drugs, to get these drugs, they're so widely available that, you know, some people don't hesitate. Uh, yeah, why not? You know, so it's like the same pattern mm -hmm. when you're, you know, for children at risk for drug addiction, you know, when they're like, you know, offered marijuana or cocaine, you know, it's the same pattern, only that this is legalized, so to speak. So it has to be actually much worse. You know. And uh, Well, now, just me mentioning that, Gabby, the, that's the, the, legal, the legal drugs now are the biggest concern for parents, uh, the pharmaceutical mm -hmm. drugs for teenage addiction because they're so easily accessible. Not to cut you off, but that, you know, as a as a parent that just survived teenagers, uh that is your biggest concern because uh they can they have 
complete access. You know, all they got to do is raid the, the their parents' medicine cabinet or their, you know what I'm saying? It's really, really easily accessible for teenagers. Well, and it's, it's not even just the, the access that they have. It's also that they're being pushed on these kids, too. Any kind of any kind of kid has like some kind of acting out in class type episode. The first response of of the the teachers and the principal are like, let's get them on drugs. So I mean, it's it's as as a parent these days, um, you know, and I'm not a parent myself, but you know, I, I know many parents, and they say that they have to you know basically fight off these people trying to push drugs on their kids with like a stick to try and get to try and keep them from drugging their kids. So like it's it's like it's no longer like the drug pusher on the corner. It's like you know it's the teachers. It's uh, you know being influenced by um, you know doctors, pharmaceutical reps, that kind of thing. They just want to, to drug all these kids into being complete automatons, essentially. Yeah, compliant. Yeah. That reminds that reminds me of a, an emergency I saw last year, I think, and it was a kid who was completely mad. He was yelling, screaming, violent. And I was cold, and I was like, "What? I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do?" And then, you know, I went quickly through his medical history, and I realized he was on all kinds of antipsychotics. And I said, "Why? Why on earth will be on all of this?" You know, and I was checking his psychiatric history. He was like, you know, he was basically a family problem. Like parents got divorced or something, and he started like behaving differently and like this is not something that calls for antipsychotics i'm pretty sure that the antipsychotics cause cause bad reaction you know i basically you know i i refuse to give him the another antipsychotic to calm him down you know basically you know in the end another doctor came and you know and he basically like you know forced forced him to calm down but you know by um cognitive therapy like basically like some techniques you know and it really worked. Mm. So we were both like, yeah, like, this is totally abnormal. Like, we never mm. experienced that before. Like, to to see a child so mad and so overly prescribed, this is not normal. We both said, like, why is she on antipsychotics? It's like, this never used to happen, like, two decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. new and doctors are more tested. They're not even they're not even tested for children. That's the craziest part about it all. Is mm-hmm. that the, these drugs have never been tested for the use in children and they're not supposed to be used on children. Yeah. But they it's a growing, you know, market. Mhm. Yeah. Oh, it makes me angry. Er. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me think of a uh, I I had a a conversation or a kind of a group discussion once where a uh, detective was involved, police detective. I know it wasn't in the police station. It was in a different context. Um, <laughs> but uh, we were all talking and uh, somebody brought up the idea of, uh, you know, to ask the detective, well, what do you think about the idea that marijuana um, is this gateway drug and contributes to like the devolution of somebody's personality and their lifestyle? And he said in his experience that, no, it's prescription drugs. He said, by and large, mm-hmm. like every, pro- every problem they run into as police, um, have, you know, and everything that they've seen, that people who are involved with harder drugs like cocaine, uh, meth, you know, crack, or even heroin, were led into that by and large by prescription drugs and by abusing those drugs. Um, 
Mm. So, you know, it's, and they're, they're so easy to find. Um, you know, obviously I'm not promoting this, but it just is, uh, you know, it, if you live in any kind of city, they're easy to find. And even online now, um, they can be ordered, uh, maybe not the big names, but, um, you know, knockoff drugs, which are very similar, um, can be ordered online by filling out a little questionnaire. And they have somebody who maybe or maybe not has a medical license and they look at the questionnaire and they hit OK and then you get it in the mail. And that's that's a pretty mm-hmm. common thing now. I didn't know about that. That's pretty bad. Yeah. It's I mean, it's practically I'm I'm being a bit facetious here, but it's practically easier to get them than it is to go, you know, get like a, a Z pack or, you know, Benadryl or something from the store. Mm-hmm. Or as easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I th- in uh, another article we carried on the science page called "Are Drugs Behind the Epidemic of Mental Illness?" and this came out in 2012. Um, it's a discussion about uh, Whitaker's book that I mentioned earlier. Um, but also there was another book that just kind of made me think of this um, in the article. Uh, it's called Drug-Induced Dementia, A Perfect Crime. And um, it, it says that basically uh, any of the five classes of psychotropic drugs that are commonly used to alter the brains of psychiatric patients, so antidepressants, antipsychotics, psychostimulants, tranquilizers, mood seizure stabilizers, have shown microscopic, macroscopic, radiologic, biochemical, immunologic, and clinical evidence of brain shrinkage and other signs of brain damage, especially when used long-term. Long-term use can result in clinically diagnosable, probably irreversible dementia, premature death, and a variety of other brain-related disorders that can mimic mental illnesses of unknown cause. So I wanted to mention that just because the use of these in children, like, you know, Mm. think of, you know, what we may be dealing with in the years to come with all these kids on these kinds of medications, you know, whether prescribed or taking recreationally. You know, it's, hmm. it's really concerning. Yeah. I think yeah. the the main argument that I really like about the interview of Robert Whitaker is that these drugs prevent higher cognitive function. That's basically the main message, you know, the most important message for me. Because you need, you actually, you need your higher cognitive functions to be able to regulate your emotions, to be able to feel empathy, to be able to have consciousness, you know. And these drugs actually target precisely that. So you cannot mm-hmm. expect any improvement in your life or in the type of person you are if you take these drugs, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. as, you know, especially as prescribed as candy. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. You know, when your body is showing a symptom of some kind, it's communicating something to you. So, you know, and it's it's it, it doesn't do you any good to try and numb that symptom because you're not dealing with the reason that it's showing you that symptom. So I know that uh, in, in homeopathy, they often uh, say that by suppressing these symptoms, what you're actually doing is just driving them underground 
um, suppressing them, and then it will manifest in some other way. It'll come out uh, stronger. They use the uh, example quite frequently of having some kind of eczema or something like some kind of skin rash or something, and you suppress that with a cortisol. Well, by suppressing it, you're not actually dealing with the underlying symptom or the underlying uh, cause. So then uh, it will manifest in some other way. And eventually that actually will manifest as some kind of emotional um, symptom. So, you know, it's by, by cutting these things off, you can just look at it from the emotional level. If somebody's undergoing a lot of stress or they're depressed or um, anxious or something like that, by taking something that suppresses that, you're just driving that symptom underground. You're not actually looking at why this is happening. And you're, you're interfering with your ability to kind of come to some sort of resolution. You know, the, your body is communicating something to you. Your, maybe your spirit or something like that is communicating something to you. Something is wrong. So by numbing that, you're cutting off that communication completely. And yeah, I can completely see that you are suppressing those higher um, reasoning functions. It's like, no, I don't want to hear about this. I just want to, uh, I, I just want to, you know, go go through life um, without having any kind of stress or anxiety and and uh, be a zombie essentially. So it's it's, yes, uh, and, it's and kind of yeah, that's the main problem that I see on a mass scale for everybody who takes these drugs on a mass scale. I'm open-minded that some people might need it on a temporary basis, okay. But on a mass scale, the psychiatric drugs are so, um, you know, commercialized. It just, you know, basically breaks the society's moral compass, literally. You know, we're, you know, people stop seeing that, that something's wrong with their government, with their, how life is going, and, you know, it's crazy. Definitely. Frightening yeah, too, absolutely. Mm-hmm. but I think that the the awareness is coming out. Like I know Doug and Gabby and myself, we all teach the EE, the Aerola Stress mm-hmm. Reduction Program, and it's amazing after about five or six years of working with people to see that people's consciousness is changing. They're they're realizing people are realizing that. You know, they've got to try something different. As you said, Gabby, this may work in a short time. Like, uh, just to take Xanax, for example, um, you know, when people are coming off of drugs in in rehab, the first thing they do, especially heavy drugs like heroin and and, um, cocaine and crystal meth, things like that, the first thing they do in rehab is, is give... Xanax or benzodiazepines or Klonopin, mm-hmm. which we talked about in a previous show, and it's only meant to be, you know, for like a couple of weeks to break through, and then, you know, but unfortunately, people are taking these things for years. I mean, I've met so many people who've come to my classes and said, well, you know, I have this low-level anxiety in my life every day, and I just take half a Xanax bar, and I feel better, you know, and so mm. I don't go there on the, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that, but I suggest have you tried breathing exercises or have you tried, you know, stress reduction techniques, you know, have you tried meditation? And people are open to it. They really are open to trying something else because they're realizing with these this low-level anxiety and these drugs that they're getting all these side effects and, and they want something different. You know, they they don't want to have to be dependent on that all the time. Have you yeah. guys seen that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a sense, yes. 
like because when I teach EE, it's sometimes different groups. Like sometimes I teach um, for people that are already attracted to alternative uh, therapies. Um, for the ones that are very main into mainstream medicine, you know, they they're more like this information never reaches them in a sense. So, and yes, and they know they're highly stressed and they want to learn, um, but they're so completely like brainwashed <laughs> that uh, I've seen more people, more open-minded as each year passes, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah. I think it's experientially based. For example, Go ahead, Gabby, it's an interesting case because I taught the breathing exercises the other day to a person um, who was actually on benzos and was still having anxiety attacks increasingly despite the drugs. And this person has been several years on them. So I said, well, okay, okay let's learn some breathing exercises. And this person started practicing them and saw so needed relief. So something as simple as that, you know, who can relieve uh, stress even though you're on the drug. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think in, you know, <clears throat> in our modern society, uh, we can see that memory is not, you know, a, a big focus. Um, you know, it's, it, a lot of people have short memories or our culture has a short memory as a whole. And um, it, it takes memory at a very basic level um, to be able to kind of attach your experiences to your desired outcome. So that sort of makes me think of that it's it's very largely experientially based. I mean, people who have gone through the process of being depressed because of trauma or some other thing in their life, which led them to take a drug to combat that, they feel better for a little while. But then after a certain period of time, uh, the drug burns out their GABA receptors and dopamine receptors, and <clears throat> they just feel like crap, you know, all day, every day. And so the struggle becomes to feel kind of a baseline, like I, I just want to feel less like crap than I did yesterday, not actually good. They need to be able to remember what the feeling was like in order to want to try something different. So, Eric, I agree that a lot of people would want to, you know, try something natural or try an alternative uh, remedy to their state of mind. Um, but I think a lot of people are, are so damaged um, just by, you know, diet, uh, pollution, and these drugs all combined together that uh, it, it's it's a, I think there, the people are few and far between that actually say, oh, yes, I can recognize that this doesn't make me feel better, so I'm going to try something different. Yeah, it's kind of like just uh, reflective of our society overall. You know, this this is kind of sold as the, as the, the way that you deal with these things. You know, it's like yeah. if you're feeling bad, then, you know, you go and you get a drug. Like that's, you know, doc, doctors don't have alternatives. They're only kind right. of trained in this phar, uh, pharmacological response. Like that's it. Like, you know, they, they don't, you know, they might recommend something like, oh, well, maybe you should exercise or maybe you should do some yoga, but but they're still pulling out the prescription pad. So and it's it's like, you know, even when you watch, um, you know, the media or anything like that, there's very few alternatives that are actually given. 
And, you know, the, the natural alternatives are often kind of given, uh, you, you know, they're, 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 it's something that the hippies do. You know what I mean? It's like it, the, the new agey kind of stuff. It's like, no, 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 that's not a real um, way to deal with these things. So it's, it's kind of just endemic of the whole uh, situation. You know, if, if somebody is like an individual is being overwhelmed, you know, they don't they don't know what the answer is. And, you know, you, you know, a rational person would start doing some research and kind of say, okay, how can I get to the bottom of this? How can I deal with this? What's really going on here? But that's not, that's not sold as a response. So anybody who's not used to kind of like take, taking their health into their own hands and kind of looking into what's going on and, and trying to figure things out, um, they look for the quickest answer they can find. And that's, that's the only answer that they're given. Or what is fashionable, which is, for example, go to the gym or, you know, run a marathon or basically remedies that are considered healthy but actually could put your body on fight and flight mode, you know, doing aerobic exercise like two hours in a row. Um, mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's not exactly stress relieving. In a sense, people get, you know, hooked on even on exercise, running a lot, you're doing a lot of uh, aerobic air exercises, but it's not actually the most healing mode because of the fight and flight response, you know. Mm -hmm. And it, and it does take down. work. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's work. It's something that, you know, it's it's a normal human reaction. There's a lot of things in this world that do cause anxiety, and instead of blocking that and you know, drugging your moral compass to see it and experience it and then have basically a coping mechanism, how how you're going to proceed through the, the experience in the moment. And, and you know, uh, as they say, meditation is a practice. You know, it's something that you have mm -hmm. to practice and, and you have to get better at and, and some days are good and some days aren't. But to have, you know, just thinking that the pill is going to be the solution and then the long term later on down the line the, the, the symptoms get more intense and more overwhelming and 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 really for me personally encouraging you know even people in my own family to stay with it don't give up you know I mean mm -hmm. keep trying and keep working on it and and You know, I think a lot of times I know, especially in Western culture, we, we just want a quick fix. We're such an insatiable, impatient society that we just want something right now instead mm -hmm. of, you know, taking the time to work through the issues. And, you know, it's okay to cry and have a breakdown or freak out and, you know, and mm -hmm. pull yourself back together. And, and, and really, um, it gives you strength in the end to see these anxiety-inducing situations going on around you and, you know, breathe, do some breathing, do some, you know, land in your body, get get into your own skin and kind of, um, you know, move through it and, and know that you have the strength within you. I, I think mm -hmm. that, you know, yeah. every people are so isolated and they're afraid to, to be perceived as weak that they mm -hmm. don't want to appear that way, if that makes sense. These people don't realize that everybody else is like, I'm these wrong. <laughs> that happens mm. in a sense, but most of you are like, oh my God, you know, this is like maddening. And then I go mm. to the room where you sleep, where you're on call, and then I realize, you know, I open the cabinet and there are, all, you know, drugs here and there spread out, you know, God, you know, this is like completely 
crazy. Mm. This is when I will never get tired of recommending areolas because it's the one mm. practice that relieves stress and it strengthens your higher cognitive functions. So the way you respond to life in general is completely different. It's constructive, creative, and it's mm -hmm. completely opposite of taking these drugs, which, which shuts down your higher cognitive functions, and then you basically, you know, God knows what how how you go through life, you know, adapting to a psychopathic society, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. getting it's it's the op it is the opposite. That's a, that's a good way of putting it, Gabby. Because it's like if you're you, it's getting in touch with those higher reasoning centers, you know, instead of trying to to numb these things, you know, I think it's it's kind of like a matter of perspective. It's like, you know, if you if you are going through something like this, it's like you need to see it as a challenge. It's kind of like okay, you know, I'm having I'm being presented with a challenge in my life here. I need to figure out how how to deal with this. And you know, it's it's you kind of have a choice. You can reach for the pill, as uh, as Erica said, and just numb it and deal with it. Or you can kind of like say, okay, what am what's being communicated to to me here? What is what challenge is life presenting me? What lesson do I have to learn here? How can I move on from this? How can I how can I solve this problem? So it's 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 really a difference in attitude. Yeah. I agree. I think the the work idea that you guys both just brought up is a is a really good point. Um, and I think this kind of leads down to the authoritarian follower uh, personality that, that mm -hmm. so many people have been kind of uh, corralled into being authoritarian followers. It comes down to um, who told me so, you know. So it's like, well, the doctor the doctor said so, so I should take these drugs, and then. The doctors prescribed them because, you know, the teacher said so at medical school or the textbook, you know, which was influenced mm -hmm. by the company that makes the drugs. And so the the general, this kind of vague um, cloud of, you know, authoritarian fact uh, gets taken in by everyone. And they say, well, that's just the way things are. That's just the way things are done. And there's this real lack of being able to do the work to think for yourself. You know, it's like a really simple, maybe kind of mundane example is, you know, a jaywalker is bad because they broke the law, um, you know, and, and not, you, you can't look at that person and say, well, there were no cars coming and they crossed the street. So that was a logical thing to do. Um, but, you know, a lot of people attach the, the authoritarian implications to other people's actions or to their own actions and say, you know, if I'm if I'm told to do this, then I should just go ahead and do this. If that's the way things are, um, then that's mm -hmm. just the way they should be. And there's <clears throat> people aren't coming up with their own logical conclusions to how to live their lives. And I think that, like what we're talking about, you know, the disruption of the moral compass is the disruption of the ability to think for yourself about how you should live and how you should deal with problems. Yeah, it's like you know what? Why are you on this planet? Why are you why are you in this life right now? What do you what are you here for? Are you here to kind of just tolerate and you know make it through, or are you here because you know you're here to learn something? You're here to do things. You know, are you here to just follow orders, or are you here to kind of you know do you have a greater life purpose? Yeah. Well, I think so many people are stripped of that purpose. You know, if you <clears throat> ask around it. I, I can certainly attest from personal experience. There's many times in my life where I, I've felt like I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I don't know what am I here mm -hmm. for? What, what is my purpose? I have no aim. 
you know, I, you know, I feel good maybe when my, when I'm, when I'm busy, when my mind is occupied. And then when I'm, when I'm not, then I, I have nothing to do and I have nothing to think about. And, and, you know, I just feel kind of aimless. And that certainly is not a constant state of being for me. It's something that I'm working on, but in the past I felt that way quite a bit. And I think if you asked mm. around, a lot of people would, would feel that way as well. You know, they just say, yeah. you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm here to work for my company or, you know, um, mm. I'm, I'm here to, you know, just please myself. I, you know, there's a lot of really uh, simple explanations for it. people have no higher purpose. And like what you were talking about, um, making that effort to uh, find a solution to the problems in your life and say, how can I learn from this? That alone gives you kind of a bead on a, on a higher purpose. It gives you a it gives you something to focus on and say, okay, well, I'm going to learn from life. I'm going to retain the lessons that I've learned and use them to become better. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a very common state of mind nowadays. No. Well, because these sorts of states that you're talking about, like this kind of like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? I, I think that those those things are normal. Like that is a normal response to, to life, to living. And I think that, you know, these, these states are, are a signal that maybe it's time for you to move on. Like it's time to kind of find a higher purpose and do other things. And I, I think that those, those kinds of things aren't looked at as, as normal. Those things are, are looked at as being disorders. You know, it's not, it's not right for you to feel this way. So this is a problem that needs to be solved quickly um, and easily right. by popping a pill. You know, but I think if, if we kind of have this, uh, this attitude shift where it's kind of like, no, these depressive states are normal, it's actually a good sign. It's a sign that you're kind of like um, responding properly to a situation or to, um, to your own life. You know, these, these states are um, a signal, you know, and you can either he- like, you know, hear that signal and try and, and try and work with it or you can numb it. And uh, I, I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. It reminds me of yep. that article published on the top regrets of the dying, which was put together by a nurse who worked on palliative care. And it was basically, yes, like, I wish I would have worked less. I wish I would have spent more time with family and friends and keep in touch with them and so forth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, uh, like we had mentioned a couple of times here, the uh, just the, the psychopathic nature of culture and society, the way it's going, how plagued this planet is right now by war, um, you know, by death, by manipulation, people being taken advantage of, um, whole countries being raped for their resources, for their money, um, people who are trying to make a, a decent, honest living um, being taken advantage of and being driven into poverty. Um all of these things, you know, children uh, dying, being killed uh, everywhere from Ukraine to Palestine to Detroit, uh, you know, and <clears throat> if you see these things, yeah, you, that should be depressing. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a normal, healthy response is to be depressed by that, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so to to just kind of numb it and, and turn it off is not the healthy response. And then uh, I think that's maybe a, a big reason why these things continue to happen um, is because people are just so averse to their natural human response to this kind of stupid mm-hmm. things um, that they just right. want to turn it off. And so then you have no 
no one taking action, no one speaking out. I mean, there there are exactly. certainly people here and there, but not by and large. Exactly, no drive. Like the very word emotion. You know, if you were if you numb your emotions, you know, emotion is like the one thing that puts you in motion. You know, it makes mm-hmm. you do something about. It. <laughs> Yeah. Definitely. There's actually a great article on signs um, called America's Love-Hate Relationship with Drugs by Bruce E. Levine. And um, if any of our listeners are interested, I recommend it. It's not that uh, that long of an article, but it just talks about, you know, this, this love-hate relationship. We love to hate drugs. You know, we hate illegal drugs, but we, we love legal drugs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we can talk well, all day about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's a, <laughs> I think it is a it's a good point to to rant on that, you know, um just kind of how like we all like if we might have a conversation about the the really depressing state of the world and then everybody gets really quiet and it's like, oh, you know, yeah. the the outcome the outcome of that uh, that's our, our natural response to that. I think then the next step is, um, what do you do? You know, mm-hmm. it, you, you know, I myself am not going to change like the situation in, in Israel and Palestine. You know, I'm, I'm not going to have mm-hmm. any significant effect on that just by myself alone. But I might be able to talk to somebody, you know, and <clears throat> stand up, uh, you know, verbally for the rights of the downtrodden. And that might make an effect in in them, and they might have a different outlook on life after that, you know, or they might cause them to think in a slightly different way. Um, instead of just saying, that sucks, there's nothing I can do about it, so let's go have a pint, you know. That's mm-hmm. the, the normal response should be like, what what can I do, uh, you know, even mm-hmm. if it's something very minimal. Mm-hmm. Or at least, at the it's very least, what's actually like. Yeah, it's essentially like what, what I like to think of is just planting a seed for someone to think differently. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. making a mm-hmm. suggestion or, or or bringing up the topic and then kind of letting it like you would plant a seed in the soil and let it grow. You know, uh, mm-hmm. really everyone has to come to that place on their own, but you can plant the seed and hope that that person tends to that in their own daily life, in their own you know, existence. Yeah. Yeah. I always put that analogy on the aerialist classes. It's just like everybody's different. You know, every every life is different. But it's like planting a seed. You know, you put order in your own house, so to speak, and you plant these seeds, and the sky's the limit. You know, imagine if everybody will respond to what is happening within and without in a creative way, you know, you know, we will literally live in a different world, you know, by one by mm-hmm. one, you know, <laughs> a bunch of us yeah. will create a different world. Yeah. And like what we're talking about, the, the moral compass, you know, is kind of getting your own moral compass in order. Um, it's like, you know, the, the very the very least thing you can do is learn from what you're seeing so that you can allow that to change yourself, you know, so that I can say, well, at least I recognize that this is wrong, or and that will allow me to live and express myself with more compassion in the future. Um, 
you know, because if I don't learn from it, then, then nothing, nothing has come out of that. And I was just depressed. Um, so it's, I think it's about allowing it to change you, um, and, Mm -hmm. you know, to change the way that you live and to then let those ripples kind of go out, um, into the world, uh, and to make yourself a a more conscious person to allow something like like that to happen. But when you're on these drugs that we're talking about, um, even the very basic ones, but especially the, the harder, you know, psychotropic and, uh, psychiatric uh, drugs that, you know, that kills that and that, that, that kills any drive to learn, uh, to change yourself, um, to make any kind of an impact at all. And, you know, especially just using America as a microcosm, what do we have like close, like 400 million people in America now that, um, you know, 389 million of those people are just completely dumbed down. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of it is to do with this, with the drugs that we're on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, well, let's, maybe this is a good time to give out the, uh, <clears throat> the web address for the Areolis site. Cause we've, we've mentioned it in past shows and, um, we were talking about it here today. It's if if anybody who's listening is not aware of that, it's E I R I U dash E O L A S dot org. So Ari dash Aeolus dot org. E I R I U dash And the short side E E Breathe dot com also gives you the same URL address. Yep. And remember, it's a practice. So if you do it once and you don't notice anything right away, don't give up hope. Keep coming back. Keep practicing it. And and uh, I know for myself and why I became a teacher was I was going through a very stressful point in my life, and it really saved me and my family, you know, um, from just completely losing the plot and and not being able to cope, you know, and with each practice, it gets different and better and easier. And as I said before, some days are just going to be that way. And you just sit with that and know, you know, that this is a natural part of being human and that that's, you know, you can, you know, things will change, right? It's it's a one constant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this might also be a good time to say too that we are not um, trying to give people medical advice uh, here on the show. This, the, what, everything that we talk about is um, is our opinion based on the research that we've seen. Now we could say that some of it is fact, but we have to be clear that we are not trying to give our listeners uh, direct medical advice. So, you know, as an example, if you are on say benzodiazepines, we're not telling you to stop. Um, because if you go cold turkey, the effects can also be really detrimental. The, all this stuff needs to be a process, um, and you need to be kind of under the care and guidance of somebody who knows what they're doing, whether that's a, a doctor or a naturopath or, you know, whoever your your practitioner is. Um, so we'd encourage people to, um, yes, do your research, make your own choices, but also be smart about it. 
and find somebody who knows what they're talking about. And do listen to the Mood Cure radio show that we did because we gave some good references, books, you know, and recommendations, supplements. Also, we have a disclaimer, but it's it's helpful advice. So, yeah, listen mm-hmm. to that show. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's in people, important for people to know that they're not alone. You know, this is not something that just one person is going through or just you are going through. You know, that there is a lot of people going through very similar experiences and it's good to have, you know, support and research and, uh, you know, um, other people that are experiencing the same sort of emotions at varying degrees and to share that. You know, I like I said, um, I've been spending a lot of time with family and it's amazing to me how many people, like I said, have been given these type of drugs because they're feeling anxiety because it is an anxious situation that we live in and, and to have the conversation and, and, you know, not violate people's free will, but just make suggestions and, you know, check out the EE program or check out these type of herbs that help when you're feeling those type of emotions. And and just I've noticed a lot of people just describing where their anxiety comes from, whether it's fear of death or you have a loved one that you see suffering, that you can, you know, just the person being able to share those experiences produces a sense of relief, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, compassion and, and all these things that these drugs are basically, like we've talked about in the show, numbing and dumbing down and, and, and um, you know, suppressing. So I think just having the discussion with people helps mm-hmm. yeah. as well. Well, it's like Gabor Mate talks about the um, isolation is one of the greatest contributors to addiction and that human connection can be one of the most powerful methods to overcoming that. And, you know, especially mm-hmm. the finding people who are in the same situation that, that you're in. Yeah. Well, I think we've come to a time here where we can go to uh, Zoya's segment. She's bringing us some news um, from the, from the recent week in pet health. Um, so let's go to Zoya for a little while, and then when we come back, we will have a recipe, and we'll wrap up. So here's Zoya with the pet health segment. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today I'm going to cover some of the recent pet-related news So the first news item has to do with something every pet owner, and a dog owner in particular, probably already noticed. According to a new study, apparently pets may help you identify assholes. Scientists at Kyoto University experimented with three groups of 18 dogs who interacted with their masters and others in a role-play situation. The dog owners couldn't open a box and had to ask from a stranger in the room. In the first group, the stranger refused to help. In the second group, the stranger offered help. In the third group, the stranger behaved in a neutral way. After witnessing this, the dogs were more likely to accept the treat from a neutral observer than the person who refused to help the owner. The dogs in the two other groups seemed to have no issue taking treats from the strangers. 
Scientists believe that this proof that dogs can make emotional evaluations of people and apply it socially. Even humans under three years old uh, aren't able to do this. They discovered for the first time that dogs make social and emotional uh, evaluations of people regardless of their direct interest. This ability is one of the key factors uh, in building a highly collaborative society. And this study shows that dogs share the, that ability with humans. Now, the next news item is less optimistic. Apparently, due to an increasing economic instability worldwide, animal shelters experiencing up to 20% increase in owners dumping their pets. The most common reasons given were cost of living pressures and changes to living circumstances, such as moving between rental properties. A lot of time it doesn't have anything to do with animal at all. It's more uh, so a change in circumstance uh, for the owner. It is the fact that people just can't afford to care for the pets at the moment, or they just didn't fully understand what involved in care taking care of a pet. Some organizations issue a reminder to people to make sure uh, they could afford the long-term cost of an animal before they adopted or bought one. It's making sure they fully understand that, you know, a pet is for life and that they do have the finances and resources to care for them for that time period. Well, unfortunately, considering what is about to come, the situation may become much worse for four-legged friends. Another news item is more of a warning. It is well known that xylitol, a natural sugar alcohol sweetener popular for its low glycemic index, is also known to cause hypoglycemia and hepatic necrosis in dogs. And the problem is that now it can be also found in several specialty peanut and nut butter brands. For example, brands that are being sold in U.S., like uh, Nuts and More, Crush Nutrition, and P28 Foods all make peanut butter and nut-based spreads containing the ingredient. So far, mainstream peanut butter brands haven't started using xylitol. Only the three specialty brands included in their formulations. The problem may occur when dogs may fed straight, uh, straight peanut butter as a treat or fed treats baked with xylitol-containing peanut. A second, a dog that nabs the entire jar of xylitol-containing peanut butter and happily gorges on his or her treasure without anyone know, uh, knowing could quickly become extremely ill. If this occurred during the day while the owners were not home, it's possible the dog would die before people returned. So please, keep that in mind and always check the ingredient list. Another interesting news item has to do with bears, and particularly their kidneys. Scientists at the Jackson Labrad uh, Laboratory in uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, are studying the kidney of the American black bear to see if they can learn how it functions and hopefully use what they discovered to develop new treatments for kidney disease. Black bears go into hibernation in the fall with uh, healthy, healthy kidneys. They don't urinate during hibernation, and by the time spring arrives, their kidneys are damaged and have lost most of the function. At that point, 
the bear's kidneys appear to regenerate themselves, returning to normal function during the spring and summer. How does that happen? And if the researchers will figure that out, maybe they will come up with treatments that can prevent or reverse kidney damage. Also a news item from the beginning of this month. Biologists are trying to find the reason thousands of nesting birds have abandoned a seahorse key uh, of Florida's Gulf Coast. The little blue herons, pelicans, and other birds left the island all at once in May. As it turns out, the largest bird colony of, on the state, uh, state's Gulf Coast is now a dead zone. Scientists have found no indication that disease, contaminants, or predators are to blame. The uh, abandonment concerns biologists because it could have a ripple effect. Many bird species have here he returned year after year to the same nesting sites, and biologists also don't know how the disappearance will affect the island's other animals, some of which uh, rely on the birds to survive. Well, this is just another science of the times, a sign that our planet experiences ongoing calamities that are only going to increase. So, if you would like to learn more and the possible causes and reasons, visit SOTNET site and read the articles uh, in the Earth Changes category. And the last news item has to do with one of the greatest politicians of our time and a very lucky little girl. Who said that dreams can't come true and that Santa is the only one to give long-desired gifts? Apparently, a Kyrgyz schoolgirl received a six-month-old Newfoundland puppy from the Russian president as a gift. She had asked him for the animal in, the, in an email during the annual direct line on April 16, uh, 2015. She wanted a dog of that exact breed. There were none in Kyrgyzstan, and it was impossible for her family to bring such a pooch from abroad. The girl's parents weren't aware that their daughter had written to the president about her wish and were surprised to see the puppy. They nevertheless extended a warm uh, welcome to the new family member. Uh, Dasha, the girl, says she once saw a picture of Vladimir Putin with a dog and assumed he loved animals. She had always dreamed of owning a Newfoundland, and now her dreams has come true. Vladimir Putin is known for his love for animals, and this is not the first gift of this kind from the Russian leader. In June, he sent a Labrador puppy to a girl in Tula. The region's governor personally handed the dog over to her. Well, this is indeed one lucky girl. And this is it for this week's segment. Have a great weekend! Thanks, Zoya. So that was uh, our pet health segment for this week, some, some items from the recent studies. Um, <clears throat> today we're going to wrap up our show with a, uh, a little recipe that's a, more of a uh, technique than a recipe, I guess. Um, but I personally have found this really effective um, in making any cut of steak uh, really nice and tender. 
uh, when you cook it. You know how sometimes if you fry up or grill a uh, kind of a lesser, like a chuck cut of steak, that it can be kind of tough. Um, but this I found to work really well uh, for tenderizing the meat and for adding uh, some more flavor. So uh, it's called salted steak. And basically what you want to do is take whatever your cut of meat is, and this works really well with, um, like I said, with lesser cuts of uh, beef steak, um, to basically just cover the steak in salt, pack it in, rub it into the to the meat, and then let it sit out at room temperature for about 45 minutes. And what this does is the salt extracts the, uh, the moisture from the steak itself, but it, it, as it's happening, um, the liquids in the meat are moving through the tissue, and so they're actually tenderizing the tissue as it moves. Um, so mm-hmm. after about 45 minutes of having let them sit uh, covered in salt and quite well covered, you can really be liberal with the amount of salt that you use, uh, rinse them off in cold water. Make sure you rinse them really well. And then <clears throat> put them back in your bowl with whatever kind of spice rubber you're going to use, whether it's just black pepper or, you know, um, pepper and marjoram and garlic and, like, onion powder or other kind of spices that you're going to mix together. That can totally be done to your preference. But now cover the meat with your spice rub and let that sit for another 45 minutes, and it will then... Um, reabsorb the moisture and bring those spices back into the center of the meat. Um, so this is about an hour and a half prep, so it's something you kind of need to think ahead of time about. Um, but one key point is don't add any salt to the spice rub because you've already used a ton of salt on it, and the salt has gotten into the meat. So you want to make sure to rinse the salt off and then put the spices on with no salt mixed in. Um, and then what I like to do is take a cast iron pan, and preheat the oven to uh, 425 degrees, so really hot with the pan in the oven um, so that the pan itself also gets really hot. And, of course, make sure you use an oven mitt while you're doing this so you don't burn yourself. But once it, once it gets hot, um, take the pan out, put the steaks on there, and put them back in and do that for four to five minutes per side. That will result in a pretty rare steak. You can go a little bit longer for, like, medium rare maybe six to seven minutes, um, but I usually like to do about four to five minutes per side um, and then take them out and, uh, and enjoy. And that's the, mm. that's the method of salting steak. Sounds good. I don't know. Have you guys ever tried anything like that? No, I never have. I've never, I've never tried uh, doing that. It's a good idea, especially if you've got a tougher cut. Yeah. I found it to work really well. So, yeah, the the uh, t- tip for me is not to overcook. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, if you could, That would be um, very helpful. <laughs> sometimes this, uh, if you like more of like a seared outside to the steak, um, you can, after you take it out of the oven, after having done the four to five minutes per side, have another pan on the stovetop that you get really hot and then just do like, you know, 30 seconds per side on a really, really hot pan um, to do the searing. Um, sometimes it's good that way, but I've definitely found this way to result in a, in a really tender steak, no matter what the cut is. So, yeah, you could probably do uh, it on the barbecue too, instead of in the oven. Totally. Yep. 
Yep, the key is just going through that long prep at the beginning of having the salt on there and then doing the spices and kind of letting it all soak in. Yum. Um, Yum. Yum. <laughs> so that's that's our recipe for today, and um, <clears throat> we'd like to thank all of our listeners and uh, people in the chat uh, for tuning in. Um, and uh, be sure to tune in uh, tomorrow and Sunday as well for the Truth Perspective and Behind the Headlines, also on the SOT Radio Network on Blog Talk Radio. Um, there's some good topics coming up, and we hope everybody has a good weekend and a good week, and uh, we will see you next Friday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks.